The question in the book of Mark that persists is, who is Jesus? Uh, Last week we saw Jesus come onto the scene by going to John the Baptist and being baptized in the Jordan River. And in that scene we saw heaven open up and a voice of God speaking, saying, This is my Son, whom I have loved, and with whom I am well pleased. But even though we have this great scene, it appears that everybody that interacts with Jesus from that point on is asking that simple question, who is this guy? Who is Jesus? And Mark really wants to explain who Jesus is. And so pretty much underneath everything is this question that Mark is trying to answer for us. Uh, After the baptism of Jesus, we see that he goes and he Uh, calls his first disciples, and they begin to minister together. Uh, He does a couple of healings, and because of these healings, people are amazed, and they are flocking to Jesus. And it's really no surprise, right, because you live in a society where medicine isn't that great, so if somebody can come and he can heal your ailments, people are going to come to that guy. And so people are flocking to Jesus to the point where Jesus finally decides, you know what, I got I to gotta get out of town. And so he goes out into the wilderness, and even though he leaves for the wilderness, people still follow Jesus. And what we have over the next couple of chapters of Mark are stories where Jesus does these miraculous healings, these wonderful things, and at the end of almost every one of these stories, we see that the crowds react. They are either in may, amazed They're in awe because of what Jesus is doing, or they're afraid because they don't understand what Jesus is doing. But underneath all of that is that same question that they're trying to figure out, who is Jesus? Uh, Today I want us to look uh, just briefly at a couple of different stories in Mark that kind of show us the answer to this question, who Jesus is. The first story is going to appear in Mark chapter 2. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up uh, there and follow along with us. Um, we're going to look at the first five verses of Mark chapter 2. This is what it says. Uh, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home, and they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them, and some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And since they could not get to him, to Jesus, because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was laying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Uh, so we see Jesus has come back to town. Uh, one of the things happening in Mark is Jesus will go out in the wilderness, and then he'll come back, and then go back out to the wilderness and come back. And so Jesus has come back, and uh, I think he kind of tries to keep it low-key at this point in time, but when a famous person comes to town and everyone finds out about it, uh, they're going to start to flock. And so people come to figure out and to see who this Jesus is. And the crowds are, are massive. It's so much so that, that really Jesus has no room. And so he begins to teach. And prior to this, the people came to Jesus because he was a, a miracle worker, a healer. But now they are coming because they're wanting to hear Jesus teach them something, to feed their souls. 
Uh, and amongst this crowd, as we'll see here in the next verse, are this group of people called the teachers of the law. Uh, these are the scribes uh, elsewhere in the gospel story. Uh, these were professional men who knew the law of Moses like they knew the back of their hand. They had it memorized, and they knew the interpretations, and they have come to hear Jesus teach. And I think they come because the popularity of Jesus has raised uh, some eyebrows. And they're wanting to know, is Jesus with us, or is he teaching something different? And so they're going to be sitting there listening to Jesus. Uh, the rest of the people, they're there. They want to hear Jesus. But I think some of them are probably there just to be a part of the crowd. Crowds attract other people, right? We've all seen this at some point in time. Maybe in high school, there was a crowd circled around something that going on, and you saw the crowd, and what did you do? You might have ran right towards the crowd, or you might have ran away, depending on what type of person you are. But we wanted to be a part of that crowd. I bet if we as a group went downtown to Mexico today, and we stood outside one of the shops, and together we were just stared in amazement at something that was in one of the buildings down there, the cars would be stopping to figure out what we were doing. Crowds attract people. And I think that once people started to come to Jesus more and more, just started to pack in there, not necessarily because they were wanting to see Jesus, but because they wanted to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And in this story, we see four men who have a friend who's been paralyzed. Uh, most likely, this friend of theirs, it wasn't that he was born paralyzed, but probably an accident. You know, handicapped people in, in that time were not treated very well. Uh, we, we treat ours a little bit better. We, we give them special parking spots and uh, we give them some money to help live. And as a society, we do better than what this group of society would have, although I'm sure there's ways that we could do more. And this, for them, though, the, the, if you were handicapped, you were expected to bring in some money. There wasn't a lot of extra to go around. And so if you were paralyzed, they would have dropped you on the side of the street and expected you to beg so that you could help feed yourself. And so the people would be begging. And so for this man to have friends that care deeply about him, it probably means and suggests that this man was not always this way. And so these friends, they know that Jesus heals people and they know that he's in town. And so they pick up their friend and they bring him to Jesus only to find that the crowds are so thick that they can't even walk through it. But it doesn't stop them. They go around to the outside steps that most of houses in that day had, and they climbed up to the roof, and they began to dig a hole through the roof. I can't imagine whose idea that was or who was going to repair it when it was over. But they figure out where Jesus is by listening to him. They dig a hole. They lower the man down, and Jesus looks at them and says, Your sins are forgiven. It's kind of an interesting thing for Jesus to say, since the people that are bringing this man to Jesus probably don't care about his sins, they probably care about him being able to walk. But I think deep down, Jesus knows that this man is struggling with something. Something more than just him not being able to walk. And while walking might have been a huge blessing for this man, in reality, this man needed forgiveness in his life. 
Uh, interestingly, in the Old Testament, we come across this idea that if you sin, you might physically have issues as well. And so maybe this guy is struggling with the fact that he is handicapped and maybe beating himself up over the fact that he has messed up in some way that God is punishing him. And so when he is lowered to Jesus, he is still dealing with that own internal issue to where Jesus doesn't say, get up and walk. He says, you're forgiven. Not everyone is happy that Jesus says this in uh, verses 6 to the end of the story, we read that some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus knew uh, in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mats, and go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, "What? we have never seen anything like this. So we get this uh, theological discussion at the end of this chapter, this idea of who can forgive sin. And in the Old Testament, the only person that truly can forgive sin was God himself. And so these teachers of the law who knew the Old Testament like the back of their hands, they began to get a little upset that Jesus is making this pronouncement. The high priest would once a year go into the Holy of Holies and sacrifice for the sins of the people. And he would come out and he would proclaim, your sins are forgiven, but he was just a spokesperson. Who is this Jesus? He's not the high priest. How can he be saying this? And Jesus notices instantly that what he has said has kind of upset these people, right? We, we get that, right? We're, we're in conversations with people, and every once in a while we'll say something not intending to make them mad, but we know that we've made them mad. Their face tightens up, their lips purse, and they begin to shift in their seat because they're uncomfortable with what has just been said, and I pictured this for these teachers of the law. Here they've been listening intently to Jesus, maybe even nodding their head as Jesus was teaching, and then suddenly this happens, and now, now they want nothing to do with him. And so Jesus turns to them and says, a very simple question, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? And if we ask that question, which is easier to say, obviously the answer is to say your sins are forgiven. Because how can you prove that? How do you prove that someone's sins are truly forgiven? You know, we, we, we can forgive people for the things they do against us, and we can say it to them, but how do we prove that we've truly forgiven them? It's harder. But if you say to someone, you're healed... That's easily provable right then and there. So which is easier to say? It's definitely easier to say your sins are forgiven. But which is easier to do? I think that's a little bit different question because can we truly forgive sins? Sins committed against God, who is the only person that can forgive them? And that's God himself. And so whatever this man's dealing with, the fact that Jesus forgives him, 
is, is magnificent considering the fact that only God truly has that power. And so, it, which is easier to do, it's easier to heal. And so Jesus says, to prove to you that I can forgive, I'm going to heal. And so this man gets up, he takes his things, and he walks out. And we're told that the crowd is amazed at what Jesus is doing. So how does this relate to us? Here's the thing is, I think that Jesus has the power to give radical forgiveness in our lives. And there's a lot of times in our lives where we beat ourselves up over and over and over again over our sins, over the things that we have done, knowing that if people truly found out about who we are, that they would be ashamed of us. That they would be disappointed in how we've turned out. And I think we can allow sins at times to just kind of eat us up on the inside. And I think that's what's probably happening with this man as he's laying on his mat day after day on the side of the street, just by himself, begging for money and thinking to himself, God, what have I done? And yet he encounters Jesus who forgives him. And we have a Jesus who, no matter what we've done in our past, no matter how big our mistakes are, no matter how deep our sins are, wants to forgive us as well. And He wants to radically change our lives by offering us this forgiveness. And Jesus has the power to do that. The next story I want to look at comes in Mark chapter 4. Uh, we read about uh, this other miracle at the end of the chapter, starting in verse 35. Uh, we're told that that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boats. And there were other boats with him, and a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. And Jesus, he was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion, and the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And he got up, he re rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And when the wind died down, and it was completely calm, and he said to his disciples, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified, and they asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey. Uh, Jesus is teaching in a boat for that day, and we kind of see this scene where the crowds, again, are so thick that there's really no place for him to stand. And so he gets in a boat, and he pushes away, and he creates this natural amphitheater. So he's able to speak to the crowds, and they're able to hear and understand what he is saying. So at the end of the day, after he is done doing his teaching, he says to his disciples, hey, we're in the boat already, let's go to the other side. And Jesus, exhausted from the day, lays down and goes to sleep. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is in this basin. All right, it's kind of a, a weird, unique place for it. Uh, and, and because of how it is, there are these storms that suddenly pop up. The uh, wind comes in from the southeast, like kind of like a, through a wind tunnel through the mountains, and these storms would suddenly appear, and they were dangerous. 
Uh, most times they came during the day and the afternoon, and so that's why you see a lot of fishermen on the Sea of Galilee fishing during nights. And so Jesus and his disciples at the end of the day travel at the time that was normal to travel when most storms did not appear, but this night a storm did appear. And it was a furious storm, and it was uh, dangerous, and we see how dangerous and bad it was because the disciples are terrified. These disciples, there's at least four of them who are professional fishermen. They've spent most of their lives on boats. They know how to handle storms, and if they're afraid, it's something to be afraid of. And so they go to Jesus, and they wake Jesus up, and they ask Jesus, are you not afraid of dying like we are? And I think what they're asking Jesus in this moment is, Jesus, why are you sleeping? You need to grab an oar, and you need to help us. We need every man. I don't think that they're thinking that Jesus is going to do something about this. But Jesus, after being woken up, stands up and says to the wind, quiet, be still, literally be muzzled. Much like we muzzle dogs or oxen. And he said, and instantly we're told that the winds stop and the reaction of the disciples is to be afraid for very good reasons. And what we have in this story is in the midst of the chaos, Jesus brings peace. In the midst of this storm that was wrecking the lives of the disciples, where they're afraid that they're going to drown, Jesus brings peace that is unlike anything they've ever seen. Our lives can be chaotic at times. There's moments where things are just out of hand and we really don't have a good grip on what is going to happen. Things get out of hand rather quickly, whether it's financially, whether it's uh, sickness and illness. And there's a lot of times where we don't know what is going to happen in the next hour or the next day. And in those chaotic moments of lives, we need Jesus. And Jesus, in the midst of the chaos, can give us peace. A story in the Old Testament of David is we see that David looks out on his city and he sees this beautiful lady bathing and after finding out who her husband was someone that he knew very closely he still commits adultery with her and a child is born out of that union and the child gets very sick and for seven days David is weeping and he is fasting and he is begging God God please heal And David finds in the midst of his perfect life, there is chaos even then. And he doesn't know what's going to happen next, but once the child finally dies, David finds peace. And it's so surprising to his servants that they're asking David, David, what is going on with you? And David says, I know who my God is. In the midst of our chaos... Jesus is powerful enough to give us radical peace and to bring calm in our lives even when it doesn't feel like it's possible. Uh, The next story we want to look at, it comes from Mark chapter 6, and it takes place in verses 45 through 51. And it's it's the other uh, water miracle, if we can call it that. 
Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get in a boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida. And while he dismissed the crowd, and after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. And he saw his disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw them walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost, and they cried out because they saw him, and they were terrified. And immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down, and they were completely amazed. Uh, Jesus has just gotten done feeding 5,000 people. Uh, he's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He's kind of gone there to get rest and relaxation, but suddenly a huge crowd was there, and so he began to teach them, and he feeds them. Uh, interesting, this region of Israel was very uh, ready for the Messiah. All right, over the hundred years leading up to the life of ministry of Jesus, we see that a number of rebellions started in this area around the Sea of Galilee. And we're told in the arrests of the Gospels that after Jesus fed the 5,000, they were ready to make him king. They were ready to start another revolution. But Jesus was not. And so he got to his disciples and said, you guys get in the boat, start heading back, I'm going to take care of these people. And he dismissed them and said, you guys go home. And Jesus went up onto a mountain, kind of leaving them behind, and he began to pray and in the middle of the night, he looks out onto the Sea of Galilee and he sees his disciples. And they're struggling against the wind that's against them. It's not a storm. It's just a very strong wind that's keeping them from getting to shore. And we're told that Jesus goes out to them. And the disciples, they're, they're tired. You know, they, they had just spent the whole day before rowing across the lake of Galilee, then ministering to people, then getting back in the boat with no sleep and trying to get back to the other side. And so they're, they're tired by this time, struggling to get to shore. And it's almost dawn. And in the pre-dawn light, they see a figure starting to come to them on the water. In the Old Testament, the only person that ever walked on water was God. And so they're not expecting Jesus to do this. And so when they see him in the dim light, they cry out, it's a ghost. Ghosts were very popular in that time period. And remember, some of these guys are sailors, and sailors have their own brand of superstition. And they're terrified. But Jesus cries out to them, and he says, take courage. It is I, and, and those words there in the Greek, it's the two words that God spoke to Moses when he said, I am. And Jesus provides courage but just by identifying himself, by speaking to them. And he gets in the boats, and everything calms down. These men, they're afraid, and I think they're afraid of the unknown. No, they don't, they don't know who Jesus is coming towards them in this pre-dawn light. They cannot see clearly, and they're afraid of this unknown thing that's coming at them. But Jesus gives them courage in the face of their fears. There's a lot of things that we are afraid of. But I think the biggest thing that we can often be afraid of in our lives is the unknown. We don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. We don't know how surgery is going to be. 
and how things are going to happen after that. We don't know how our kids are going to turn up. Sometimes we don't know if we're going to be able to pay our bills. And we can be afraid. And we can be afraid of our relationships. And we can be afraid of just making it to the next day. We have Jesus. And Jesus is powerful enough to distill our fears and to give us courage to face tomorrow. And he gives us courage because he loves us. Notice in this story, he doesn't wait for the disciples to get to him. He goes to the disciples after seeing their struggles. And Jesus loves us, and he knows our struggles, and he wants to come to us. In 1 John, we're told this, that there is no fear in love, but perfect, fear, or perfect love drives out fear. And we have a Jesus who loves us perfectly enough to die on the cross for us, and he wants to drive our fears away. Jesus is powerful enough to give us radical courage in the face of our fears. The last story comes from Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. It says this, Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went to Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. And there were some people, there some people brought to him a man who was deaf and who could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hands on them. And he took him aside, away from the crowd, and Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. He spit and touched the man's tongue, and he looked up into heaven with a deep sigh and said, this word that I'm not going to read, which means be opened. And at this, the man's ears were open, his tongue was loosened, he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more people kept talking about, and people were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And what we have here is Jesus going into a, a Gentile region. The Decapolis was a group of ten cities that were mainly Gentile with some Jews involved. And this particular man, we don't know if he's Jewish or Gentile. But he's deaf, and he can hardly speak. The, the word there is literally his tongue is tied, all right? So he struggles with even saying something. And probably because he can speak and, and, and understanding throughout the rest of the story, it appears that this wasn't always the case that he became deaf, that he became unable to speak. And so they bring this man to Jesus, and they're not looking for a healing. They ask him, please lay your hands on him. And the idea there is the rabbinic blessings that the rabbis would often give. And so they're, all they're asking Jesus to do is pray for him. Will you pray for this man? And so Jesus takes him aside and he puts his ear, fingers in his ears like wet willies, I almost imagine. All right? And then he also spits and, and touches the man's tongue. And uh, saliva in that day often was thought to have medicinal purposes, which is the reason why he's doing this. To show to this man, I'm about to do something amazing. And then he cries out, be opened. And this man could hear and he could speak. Now, we don't know this man's backstory. But surely in this man's life, there was a lot of pain. Just imagine the pain of losing your hearing, of un being unable to speak to your fellow man, to your loved ones, to be able to communicate. It would be terrible. 
and this man has gone through this for one reason or another, and he is just needing a prayer. And Jesus, he brings this radical healing to this man. So we have a lot of pain in our life. Maybe we have pain from the comments that people have made about us. And the pain is to the point that we are, really don't feel like we can forgive them. Now we have a lot of pain from rejection from our parents. We have a lot of pain from the insecurities that our peers have put upon us. We have a lot of pain from maybe abuse from a loved one that we trusted. And we walk around this world with this pain on our shoulders and we are just in a place like this man where we're deaf and we're unable to speak. But Jesus wants to heal us. And Jesus is powerful enough to heal whatever pains we have in our lives. Jesus can give us this radical healing. Probably the most amazing thing I think happens at the very end when the people are speaking and they say, who is this? He makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. This is a quotation from Isaiah 35 where Isaiah says that someone will come and he will do these marvelous things. And the crowd is beginning to come to a conclusion about who Jesus is. And I think Mark wants us to know this, that Jesus is powerful to get us through, to defeat whatever it is that we're facing in life. Jesus is more powerful than our deepest sins that we beat ourselves up over. He's more powerful than the strongest storms that we are trying to weather in our lives. He is more powerful than the darkest fears that we have, the fears that leave us cowering and crying out for help. And Jesus is more powerful the most painful hurts that we have in our lives. Jesus is powerful to overcome whatever we are going through if we only come to Him. If we only come to Him and take up His burden. Jesus wants to overcome the problems you are facing. Will you allow Him to do that? Jesus is powerful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for these stories of Jesus, and we've just barely scratched the surface with them. Lord, sometimes there are things in life that we just, it's just hard. It's hard to get through, and it's hard to go through. But we know that you are powerful, and that you stand strong, and that you are able to defeat whatever we're going through. I pray in our lives, Father, that we will trust you to get us through, to overcome, and to find victory in these things that hold us down. I ask this in your name. Amen.